National Talking League with Roger and Dave. Oh, greetings and salutations, people who listen to our podcast. It's National Talkie League. I'm Roger Kincaid. Dave Ware is on the other end of the Skype. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Good, Roger. How are you? Good. You like that? Does that work for you? That's fantastic. I'm in love with it. I like that. Kind of picked something appropriate, babe. Like we used to. Um, that was that. That was I think resembles the music of the '90s, Dave, which I think we both might harken back to as a pretty good era of alternative music. Yeah, that sort of ska resurgence that happened for a little while in there is what it reminds me of. Why was there only like one or two ska bands, though, that kind of hit radio? I mean, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones is the obvious one that, that stands out. And then you have a couple of others that incorporated a horn section. But it just kind of, I don't know why it ever made the radio if it wasn't going to, you know, snowball a little bit. <laughs> There's only so much ska you could listen to before you're done with it, I think. That is a fair point, actually. <laughs> so, uh, how's it going, Roger? How's your week been? Uh, it's been good. It's been, uh, yeah, you know, it's good. Now, you want you want to just address the thing that start, that at the from the start of the last podcast? Why don't we have an uncomfortable conversation about putting a beloved animal down, and then we can uh, just uh, riff on other shit? All right. Sure. Okay. <laughs> So yes, you you lost your dog. Well, loss is probably not the correct term, but you made the difficult and uh, brave decision to ease the suffering of your longtime companion. Yeah, so I had a dog. She was named Coochie, and she was awesome. And um, I had her. I had her for fourteen years, and it was like a pet of necessity. I won't get too far into the details about it, like all the mental illness and depression and parts of it, but it's a really important dog for me in terms of like, you know, my health and uh, well-being as a human. Um, and yeah, um, it happened really quick, man. Last Thursday, I took her to the vet and they told me her um, chest was full of cancer and that we should probably put a, you know, figure it out. And so on Saturday at one o'clock, she was gone and it sucked. A lot. All so a lot. did you did you have this done at the vet clinic or did you do it at your home? Um, no, we had it done at the vet clinic. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's weird. The in-home euthanasia thing. Did, have, have you done that? I know you've had to put a pet down, too. Did you do it at home? Yeah, we did it at home with our last dog Wednesday. Was that more comfortable? Yeah, it was just one of those things where she was, you know, she was she was very old and she was, you know, having trouble moving her back legs and her quality of life had been deteriorating for a while. So we just made the decision and yeah, we just decided to do it at home and, you know, that way it was sort of peaceful and calm and all that kind of thing. Right. And you don't have to walk into a strip mall bawling your eyes out or something like that. Yeah. That's what it was like yeah. for me. It seemed more, you know, it seemed more classy, more humane in some way, I yeah. guess. They get they get really clinical. I really like my vet. Um, like my vet. I liked my I, the vet I used to go to. <laughs> I don't have much cause for one anymore, um, but I might in the future. Anyway, I I, I like her, but it's sort of weird, right? Because like, you know, I'm about to euthanize my beloved, the ring bearer at my wedding, right? Like this is a this is a it's a pretty different experience for me than it is for the vet. And then, but she's still being really clinical, you know. Mm -hmm. What we're gonna do? We're gonna shave her, and we're gonna find a vein, okay, in her arm, and 
we'll just insert a, you know, and I'm like, uh, I, <laughs> I'm not hearing any of this. Like, mm-hmm. I've got yeah. an idea. I'm coming in with a dog. I'm not leaving with one. So, you know, anyway, it's, it's such yeah. a surreal thing, right? But, yeah. We uh, are, we've always had two dogs, generally. Um, just sort of started with one, got a second one to keep the first one company, and then have always just sort of kept two for the most part. And uh, the first dog that we, my wife and I had as a couple was hers before we became a couple. And uh, one night it was uh, just downstairs, it was laying down, wouldn't get up, you know, sort of little foaming at the mouth kind of thing. And there was blood coming out of her nose. And so we'd like, let's get to the vet right now. She was in the front seat and she was driving trying to get to the vet as fast as possible and I was in the back seat with the dog and I had my hand on the side of the dog and I could feel the breathing and I felt the dog stop breathing and I put my finger inside its mouth and it was cold but we weren't quite at the vet yet and I didn't want my wife to freak out or crash the car or anything so I didn't say anything and we got there and I took the dog inside and I put the dog down on the table and you know, my wife was still very much like, oh, you know, what's what's going on? And I knew the dog was gone already. Wow. And so it was just like another 30 seconds or so before it, it happened. That was really hard. Oh, my God. That was Beckett, right? That was Beckett, yes. Right. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and then there's all like the uncomfortable shit that comes along with it that's like, so, you know, um, I took the day off on the Friday and I was thinking about, having it done on the Friday um, because I was like, you know, my dog would, didn't want to walk around. The only time she'd move is when she got to go outside and then she'd take, you know, take a short walk and then she'd be like, I'm kind of over this. Let's go back in. So I was just like, you know, beside myself, I'd said everything I, you know, ever wanted to say to my pet. And, and then like my wife is usually home at like 1030 on Fridays and it's noon and I'm like, you know, frantic and stressed out. And so I phone, when I phoned her, she didn't pick up, and she's not answering my text messages. I got no idea where she is. So I call her work to talk to a friend of ours, a mutual friend who sits like at the next desk. And I was like, oh, hi, Tara. Um, is Aaron there, please? And, you know, do you see her around? She's just not picking up her phone. And so I had this, like, totally phony conversation with someone I never call. <laughs> and then, like, one or, I don't know, a couple of days later, she's like, oh, and now I understand. She read my note on Facebook. She's like, ah, that explains why you were so weird. so it's just it's all that little stuff but you know what it's i don't know man like it it was the worst it it was the worst day of my life like it truly was um and which is uh, you know also a testament to how i guess blessed i am and how great my life has been like i haven't lost a family member or anyway um the point being that it's like you, do, you you get to kind of explore yourself a little bit in these situations. And I got to have some really interesting, introspective time, you know, talking to something that whose sole purpose really was to be like a sounding board for me and just to, <laughs> just to listen. And like, because she, she ended up being on like a diuretic at the, for the last few days of her life. Um, she had to pee a lot. So I was, and I would hear her get up. Right. And, and so it's like I've, the night before, we put her down. I was up at 11, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 4.30, and 6 to take her outside. And it was like, you know, it was really cool. It was just, mm. it was nice, you know. I don't know. It was peaceful is what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I know that you did good by her and that she was good to you. And, you know, of anybody I know, the whole man's best friend thing applies, you know, most to you and Cooch. So. I remember when uh, when when our family went to Australia, we actually went out of our way to go to Coogee Beach so that we could take a picture and send it to you. So. <laughs> you bought me a hat there too. It's a pretty. We place. bought you a hat. Yeah. I wonder. I was like, I kind of think about the, um, you know how like people have kids and they'll name them after uh, uh well they'll they'll all have like start with a J or something like that for example right they'll, they'll have like a naming convention. I think <laughs> what's yours for your kids has to look good on a book or something. Oh, we just wanted names that sounded good if they were an author or something, right? Right. It has to sound good when you say it out loud. So, yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah, so now do I continue? Like, what what, have I, what streak am I on? Beaches of the world or beaches of, of Sydney, beaches of Australia? What am, I don't know what it's, I'm on. Aboriginal words? It's tricky, see, because we have, as I said, we always have two dogs. After after we lost Wednesday, though, we Wednesday was the one dog. So with the, her partner went, and then we had just her then she went, so we had no dogs for a while. And then we got one dog uh, who we named Pepper because she was kind of, you know, peppery colored. And then we got another dog maybe four months later. And Pepper's kind of, you know, mostly black with a little bit of white on her. And this other dog is mostly white with a little bit of black. So the opposite, basically. And so for a while we were like, oh, we should call her Salt. And first of all, it's it's kind of a dumb name and it's a little cliche. And then my second thought was – this animal's name is going to be entirely based on the fact that she's living with another animal. And that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like <laughs> that your name should just be part of another dog's name. You know what I mean? But you did that anyway. No, it didn't. Well, we kind of did. What do you mean? So, <laughs> so I'm not, I couldn't possibly be the first person to point out to you that a bell pepper is a thing because you named your dog <laughs> Bell. Yes. Well, no, her name is Bella, actually. Oh. Okay, well then I stand corrected then. But that, but that was certainly something that came to mind. But it was a little less obvious, I guess, right? Well, I mean, it, it may be chilly, right? Like it, the name's <laughs> kind of got to stand on its own too. Like I get Cap- your point. Capsicum or something would have worked too, I guess. <laughs> Spray. Uh, I don't know. So yeah, I guess if you when when if and when you get your next dog, I think you kind of you know you you can take that into consideration. You might name it after another beach or another place in the world that you really love, but you might see the dog and go, no, this dog's name is definitely you know the Rocketeer or something like that. Right. So, so the thing about about Kuji Kuji Beach, please please don't name your dog the Rocketeer. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, but you know, it's it's a it was a place of like. Um... Uh, I don't want to say like fantasy for me, but like I'd read about it and I'd really looked forward to going there. And it was like one of the things like, oh, I really I really feel like I'll be uh, I'll find myself at Coogee Beach. Like I was 19 when I went there. Right. Um, so then the the question becomes like, uh, do I pick another place that is very meaningful that I went to? Because I got the dog long after my trip to Australia. So do I then like my wife and I were engaged at at Lake Agnes. So do I get a dog named Agnes? <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be a fun name for a dog. If it's like a little Scotty or something, that would work, I think. <laughs> or a Corgi. Dogs don't give a shit what they're called anyway. That's right. Um, and going back to the thing about salt, like you're not going to name your dog after a shitty Angelina Jolie movie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we named her Gia or Gia. That was a good Angelina Jolie movie. We were going to call her League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, <laughs> but we changed our minds. So. What was that movie, Curve the Bullet? 
Oh, uh, wanted. Was it wanted? I, I couldn't remember if it was wanted, wanted or unwanted. I think it's wanted. Yeah, I think Is you're it right. Wanted? I think it's wanted. Yeah. Um, curve the bullet. And it's like, why didn't... I know I know the obvious answer is, but like, don't you think Morgan Freeman at some point could have said, I'm not going to say stupid things. I'm not going to say curve the bullet. Like, I'm the guy who's going to do the visa commercials. People <laughs> dream in my voice. I'm not going to get them into this, like, curve the bullet. Like, it's a thing people can do with a gun. <laughs> yeah, just shoot a that, curveball around the corner. Who's doing that? There's a lot of crappy things in that movie. There's a couple things I really, really loved in that movie, too. It's very styly and... The whole beginning where the fellow's, you know, walking through his office and uh, he finds out that his his best friend, who's played by Chris Pratt, has been, you know, doing his girlfriend. And so he takes his keyboard and he just smashes it right through the guy's face. And you get this, the, the some of the keys from the keyboard come floating oh, up yeah. onto the screen and one of his teeth. And it says basically F you, right? Right. And that made me laugh quite a bit. You must have seen the movie uh, Shoot 'Em Up with Clive Owen. I've seen part of Shoot 'em Up. Oh, really? Which part? I just didn't make it all the way through. It's just like, okay, I've seen enough. I'm good here. Oh, that movie's—it's too good. You've got it. You've—you—it's a Bugs Bunny film, right? It absolutely is, man. And Paul Giamatti is the uh, uh, the the villain in that one. But it's like they just they 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 took the limit of like you know what they do in those films and what what's kind of tasteful and what's not, and and they just like cranked it way up, like beyond eleven. To say nobody, like we we just can't have anybody leaving this theater trying to take this movie seriously. <laughs> like there's a scene at the end where Jamadi he's he's by this fireplace and there's bullets on the floor, and he picks them up and he puts them like between his fingers, and then he holds his hand in the fire, <laughs> and like he shoots at the guy like ah bang the bullets all go off. Or there's a there's a shoot him up in a playground and like everything is in the line of fire. <laughs> It's wild. That was a, it was a really fun movie. I recommend it. Madness. Better than Salt. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, so we're speaking about movies, so we're kind of on the media topic. So we had actually we had a uh, a topic request from a topic request from our uh, from our <laughs> Facebook page for the National Talkie League Facebook page uh, from uh, Eric Wilhite. Wilhite, I think it's pronounced. Sure, yeah. Um, and Eric, uh, so I'll just read what he asked. He says, topic request for next episode. So on this week's episode, you talked about your favorite TV shows. Curious what your favorite Netflix comedy specials from the last little while have been. And then sort of a follow-up uh, with being able to download from Netflix and, and take them with you. The turnaround for topical comedy specials is way less. And it could really start replacing the need for the comedy album it already has, in my opinion. I'm looking forward to the new Chappelle specials out soon. Yeah. So I guess first we can sort of talk about comedy specials on Netflix that we like, and then we can talk about the whole, you know, where is the future of recorded comedy? The Chappelle specials, by the way, don't they come out this week? I They might already be out. No, I don't think they are. I was cause I, I watched the Bill Burr one today. Um, oh, okay. Actually, it's funny. I, I I put it on, and then I was listening to it, with my head, you know, laying down with my headphones, in, and I fell asleep. And so I kind of like drifted in and I got to watch it again, but I kind of drifted in and out of it. And so I believe, and I'm not sure, but I believe he talked about a gorilla for a, an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, like it, sounded, it was like an hour and a half long joke. Uh, but I got to check that one out again. But I'm a huge Bill Burr fan. Um, what do you like about Bill Burr? You know what? I just, not to sound cliche, but like he's that comic who says what everybody's thinking. You know what I mean? It's, right. It's just that he... I like his attitude and I like his intelligence. 
like the, he really won his jokes are funny first of all that that whole bit about um um you know the the mom on Oprah and like Oprah introduces her you know she's also got the hardest job in the world she's a mom and then like and then he goes yeah like you know no one's dying of black lung bending over at the waist to put a DVD player or DVD <laughs> in the, I, you know I'm not going to riff the guy's joke but yeah you know you youtube it like that shit's hilarious but I, that's funny like there's some really high quality stuff in there that people don't say dare say in mixed company because you just don't want to have to have that conversation but he does the joke and he stands there and he goes what i'm right huh i'm right <laughs> and the other thing too about him is that he was on uh bill maher um and bill maher was like reading comments about him and like you know the misogynist sexist stuff that he has and he just looked over and he goes yeah i don't care about that stuff like, i don't do i don't do comedy for them like I do my shows for the people that buy tickets to my show. I don't care what those people, other people think. And I'm like, that's the best way to go through life. Like, who cares what people think? <laughs> oh man, you go crazy worrying about what everybody thinks. That's like that's kind of uh, the the like they don't take that seed out of your brain in radio school. I just launched my website, by the way, the Roger FM thing for broadcasters and podcasters. Sorry, I haven't launched. It. I just pre-launched it. <laughs> Marketing. Um, for for broadcasters and podcasters and it's like i am going to do everything in my power to make sure that everyone who comes into contact with me doesn't give a shit what anybody thinks about them <laughs> <laughs> i like it um, yeah i mean it's it's, it's hard it's it's one of the, it's a life lesson never mind just for you know radio or for for comedians but the whole life lesson of you know if you're going to spend half your life worrying about what people think or what they might think when the truth is most of the time they don't give a crap about you. They're not thinking about you. They're worrying about what people think about them. You know, if you'd spend all your time worrying about that, you're never getting anywhere. Oh, yeah. it's It kills your show, too. It's just like if you're trying to do comedy to please people and be accepted or you're trying to do a show to please people and be accepted, you're screwed. Like you just you can't win. Absolutely. Okay. So you like Bill Burr. Uh, I wanted to say um, one more thing about Bill Burr, though. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Did, for you, sure. did you see when he did the benefit in Philadelphia? And like the crowd got a little ruly. It was some sort of like Night of a Thousand Comics sort of thing. Okay, no, I, I might have heard about it. I'm not sure. And I can't, I can't remember who the comic who was on before him. Dom, uh, I was gonna say D'Agostino, but I don't think that's right. That's right. Um, anyway, but they booed him, and then Bill Burr comes out, and he's got like 15 minutes or something like that, and all he did was berate the audience and talk about what a whole Philadelphia is, or you know, and like he was, oh, it was hilarious. And then he would count down. So he would like, you guys are the worst, the worst audience I've ever heard in my life. Twelve minutes left. And then he would <laughs> just keep going. It's priceless. <laughs> yeah, I like I, he, he definitely has he has more smarts than his material lets on, you know. Like, I think he kind of aims his material at that sort of middleman, you know, doesn't try to go too highbrow with his concepts and stuff. But I think he is a higher concept comedian than he lets on. Yeah, I think that's not. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. But I think he's that's kind of being authentic, though, right? Because he does. Mm -hmm. He comes from that. You know, he comes from Boston. He comes from that part of town where, you know, he's drink beer and crack wise and stuff. And that's who he is. I like it. Um, Okay, who else do you like? I was going to ask you. You go. I just did a whole. Oh, okay. Um, Bill Burr. Well, uh, I'm just trying to think because I do watch a decent amount of comedy specials, but there's few that really grab me and make me go, "Oh my god, that guy's so funny." Uh, I like John Mulaney quite a bit. I don't even uh, know who this is. You don't know who John Mulaney is? No. Um, he's a well. I think he's from Chicago originally. 
he's kind of a New York guy now. Uh, he and uh, Nick Kroll were doing a, a stage show based on a bit from one of Nick Kroll's uh, TV shows where they play a couple of old Jewish guys who uh, prank people by putting too much tuna in their sandwiches, <laughs> sending them a sandwich with too much tuna. So they play. I, these I know who of, this you know, guy is now. I just, I, yeah. I just Google um, But John Mulaney's material cracks me up quite a bit. He's very sort of, you know, takes himself down a couple pegs, but he's got some very funny, very smart material. I think he's got a couple on uh, Netflix and I'll turn them on, you know, sort of again and again and listen through them and, so I like him quite a bit. I'd recommend him. Have you seen? Um, I think the best comedy special on Netflix I've seen in a while though is um, Thoughts and Prayers. Anthony Jeselnik. Oh yes, yes. You actually recommended that to me, and I watched it. Did it you was, watch it? it? Very, yeah, it was very good. That joke about the um, uh, the pickup line to me is like one of the. I think that's one of the best jokes I've ever heard. Where he says. Uh, I hate doing this, by the way. It's like, oh, it's one of the best jokes, and then I'm going to tell it in a horrible way. But you he's have to like, remind me because I'm not sure if I remember. He says that. a woman came up. He's, you know, they're talking to a woman at a bar, and he says, oh, "And what do you do?" And she goes, "Oh, I'm a neurosurgeon." And I thought that's amazing. I never knew women could be so good at sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> right? And it's like it's got these awesome layers to it, and you're like, wow. So he's he's a very sort of in your face and uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Dark. dark well, dark, um, in, uh, in provocative, I guess maybe. Yeah, like I, it intentionally tries to push your buttons to see how far you can. It's the only thing go he does. It's, it's the only thing he does, and it's like. But you know he's not like uh, what was that guy Tosh who did who did like the you know she should get raped wouldn't it be great if she got raped like mm-hmm. you know that's just that's kind of lowbrow provocation and, and really quite senseless. I thought that was pretty senseless. But th- this guy is just like, I'm going to offend your sensibilities. And if you get offended to the point where you have an outburst or you feel like you have to leave, you had no idea what I do. Like, you shouldn't have come to the show. He, he, he talked about how whenever, like, really horrible disasters would happen, like Sandy Hook or the Boston Marathon bombing, he would find out about it because his Twitter feed would blow up with people saying, don't. Do oh it. yeah, don't don't do a joke about this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. Which informs his whole show. Like the whole third act of that special Thoughts and Prayers is like it's what well, it's maybe it's like a 90 minute show, right? And for 30 minutes there's not one laugh. And the mm-hmm. joke at the end of that 30 minutes is like it's uh it brings the rafters down on the place. It's outstanding. <laughs> I I really was blown away when I when I uh when I watched that special. Um, another one I watched recently that I quite liked was Pete Holmes. I don't know if you know Pete Holmes. He's got a new show called Crashing where he, you know, like a couch surfs, I guess is the concept. But he's, he's kind of a very sort of, he's more of a writer. He's got a, he's got a great bit about, uh, about unicorns and how we really screwed up as a society when we called them unicorns because really they should be called unihorns. Because they have just one horn. It's not that they only have one corn. And it's okay. You're like, ha ha, that's sort of funny. And then you spend the next hour going, you know, he's right about that. <laughs> it's, I should just really call them unihorns from now on because he's right. <laughs> the writer makes a good point. Yeah. The, 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 the whole point Eric's getting at, though, with talking about, like, you know, downloading the, the Netflix special and, you know, how, um, you know, it makes the recorded comedy album kind of irrelevant. I think he's right, but you know, I liked those um, the HBO comedy specials. You know, from back in the day, 
where there was a little bit of a sketch comedy element to it as well. Mm-hmm. Like the the you know the, the, usually those shows would start with well maybe not usually the ones that I liked the most would start with like a little kind of skit right and you could see like they'd have like the movie the projection screen in the auditorium and then you'd be watching Dennis Miller making out with the chicks at the bar and then he gets on the airplane and then he walks in from stage right and then boom he slays you for ninety minutes like I think that that's the one element that the, the visual uh, element that a lot of comedians don't put into. Uh, to these Netflix specials. I don't necessarily see it anyway. Yeah, no, I think you could be right. Um, and it's funny because some of them sort of make fun of that beginning opening segment where they're, you know, supposed to be traveling to the show or whatever that, you know, getting to the the venue kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tricky because it's like, do you just open straight up where the show opens? Do you do a big number? You know, there's all sorts of different ways to handle it. And there's so many specials now that, yeah, it's sort of, you know, how do you stick out at this point, right? I liked it because— Do you need to? I don't know. Well, I just liked it because it was insightful about the the individual, right? Like, it kind of gave you, like, a little bit of a primer or primer. If we're talking about Dennis Miller here, we would say primer. Have I got you on that one, by the way? Or do you say primer? The primer or the primer? No, I would say primer. Wow, damn it, I thought I had you. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but you'd get like a little primer about the comic who's, who's about to come out and like, you know, where his head's at, where he's at in his career, you know, what, what this show's going to be about. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I think I missed that. I'd like to see if, if Chappelle does it in his uh, episodes coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd probably the only other comedian that jumps out in my head, but not maybe for the Netflix side of things, probably more in that he's doing a podcast now is, uh, is Dana Gould. We've talked about him before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I discovered Dana Gould when I went to uh, Los Angeles for a theater sports competition. And two of the girls from the Los Angeles theater sports group were like, Hey, he kind of looks like he reminds me of Dana Gould. And I was like, I don't know who that is. But then I went and looked him up and I was like, Hey, this guy's really funny. Hey, this guy's probably my favorite comedian of all time. Just the the way he conceptualizes and comes up with stuff. And, uh, we went back, uh, wife and I were sitting around watching TV and, uh, crave TV actually has some of the really old clips and that kind of thing in old comedy shows, some of those HBO specials. And so we went back and watched one of Dana Gould's really old shows from, you know, probably from the eighties. And, I got this really super weird feeling like I was watching myself. Like he looked enough like me yeah. when I was that age that I was like, I know that this wasn't me because my brain knows that, but it's still kind of weirding me out all the same. <laughs> I got to watch that now. And I'll tell yeah, my yeah, wife. I'll, I'll like, send you the link. I was just like, this is just weird now. I'll tell Aaron. I'll be like, this is Dave's comment. Dave did this special. It's pretty good. <laughs> it used to be really funny. <laughs> well, Dana Gold used to write for the for the Simpsons, right? Yeah, he wrote for The Simpsons for quite a while. He has a show of his own on IFC now called Stan Against Evil. Wow. Um, he's everywhere. A, yeah, he he's, does a lot of stuff. He produces. He's got a podcast. His, his podcast, I think, is amazing. It's like two hours long. It comes out once a month, generally, because he's a busy guy. Right. Um, but it's like two to two and a half hours long, and he has a lot of really funny comedian friends on there. One of them is actually from Calgary. Um, and just good stuff. He's got, sometimes he's got some really interesting, you know, insightful guests and sometimes they're just riffing and joking and having a good time. So who's the Calgary guy? Do you know? Uh, Jesus. Now I should know this. Rob, Rob, I'll look it up. Sorry. I can't remember his name now. I was thinking about this. Like, you know, when I worked at X, we had a lot of comedians that would come through, um, you know, less so at QR. Although I thought interviewing comedians for 30 minutes was always awesome, but whatever. Um, 
And the one uh, I was going to I've got one in mind, but I'm going to ask you the question. If there's you, if you saw anyone do comedy that surprised you and I kind of want you to kind of step outside the box we've been thinking in cuz a lot of times we'll see actors who will roll through town and they're doing like stand-up sets. Uh, and and they're either really crappy or surprisingly delightful. So I'm, I'm wondering if you've been like delighted to see someone do stand-up comedy you weren't expecting it to be as good. Oh gosh. Um I don't know. I mean I don't go to a lot of stand up these days. We used, I used to work in a comedy club for years. We used to do improv as the middle act. And so there's quite a few people that came through, but they were all straight up stand up comedians. So I don't I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I'm I saw, sorry. I saw Bobcat Goldthwait do stand up. And uh I didn't think I'd go. Like it was really fun interviewing him. Mm-hmm. And he 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 was touring a film, right? Like it was weird. He had a movie called um was it the Sasquatch movie? No, no, it was the one about like how everyone is too caught up in American Idol. They're not paying attention to how they Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. American I can't yeah. remember the name of it. Sorry, go ahead. So anyway, so he does um yeah, he he did stand up at Yuck Yucks and like he he was just funny. Like it was delightful and it was it was kind of like self-deprecating at sometimes. He sort of told a lot of stories. But he had this story about like being on a plane and uh he was like there's there was a lot of uh, uh there was a Oh, how did he say it? He said there were a lot of developmentally delayed kids on the plane. So it was either a Special Olympics track team or his, or a da- hip-hop group with Down syndrome or something like that, right? Because they're all wearing, like, windbreakers and, and uniforms. But then he goes um, – and then, like, the there was, like, an engine fire. And the, so the captain came on and just to, you know, let everybody know that, you know, we're not flying to New York. We're going to touch down in Chicago. And just so you know, when we get to the airport or, we, you know, we get to the runway – uh, there's going to be a lot of emergency vehicles. You're going to see uh, probably some foam on the runway, and you'll see a lot of fire trucks, but don't be alarmed. And then he goes, and from like three rows behind me, clear as day, I hear, a fire truck! <laughs> and he goes, yeah, kid, if we live, you get to see a fire truck. <laughs> and it's just a perfect, it's a great story. And he ends it by going like, I'm sorry, man, If you just if you think because they're, handicapped or delayed in some way that they're not that you know they're not delightful and humorous then you're just not living in the same world as the rest of us and i was like yeah good for you well but and he was a stand-up comedian like for a great deal of his career right all were like that was because in the 80s it was like you'd 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 make it to the improv and then you'd get either a sitcom or a police academy Mm -hmm. right yeah well and he was him and uh and sam kinnison they were the original sort of shouty comics right Oh, really I Bobcat was one. Yeah, he was kind of waving, and then I'm going to yell a little bit. Yeah, I couldn't take. I couldn't tolerate that. <laughs> I couldn't sit through a show like. Didn't like the I was going I could not <laughs> get with that. The answer was uh, Rob Cohen. By the way, oh, is okay. the name of the the Calgarian who is uh, does stuff with with Danny Gould. Uh, yeah, no, I like Bobcat. He's pretty funny. Um, I'm just trying to think there were so many people and, and I see them now on TV shows, like, you know, just sort of, uh, headliner acts that would come through town, you know, people like, like Brent, Butt, right. Who of course, you know, created and starred in corner gas for so many years. He was a pretty, he was fairly regular coming through on the circuit and some of the other writers, a lot of the guys that came through ended up being the writers of all the Canadian shows and that kind of stuff. So it's always cool to see their names pop up when you're watching something. Um, I wonder if Canada is a bad place to be a, an aspiring comedian. Cause it seems to me that, that if you make it in Canada, 
you get to shoot like a CTV comedy special at four in the afternoon on a, a Saturday, right? <laughs> or like you get to be on the debaters. Where and then you go, then you go audition for Saturday Live. Pretty much, is how it works. Yeah, like like the debaters on CBC. I think it's a hilarious show, but I don't think anybody's. It's a launching pad for anything. You get ten minutes, and you share the stage with two other people. And the funniest, like the guy who's got the most spotlight, is the host. So, yeah, right. Like, so I just it it just sort of seems to me like if you make it as a comic in Canada, you're doomed. I'd love to. Well, be yeah, that's I don't not know. the it's trick. Not my, it's not my arena. I'm probably wrong, but it's just my observation. A lot of the folks that I know that I've done work with, um, uh, basically become writers. That's kind of the path they go down. Try to get on, like you know, Levi McDougal, one of our Loose Moose alumni. Uh, very funny stand-up comedian. Uh, was he's writing and working on Conan now, so got himself a little Conan gig. Did a lot of work with Dimitri Martin as well. That's so. funny. His special, by the way, uh, Dimitri Martin's last special was pretty good. I bet you Levi wrote some of that. I would think. Anyway, I shouldn't say that because I don't know that for sure. But <laughs> but I know Levi's working with him pretty steadily. Uh, Albert Howell, another great friend of mine and Loose Moose alum, Second City alum. He's you know working for uh, was on Jimmy Fallon. Uh, his writing team for quite a while so oh, yeah. that's a lot of it you did that's how you got the uh you did a lego mosaic for fallon you got like a picture <laughs> of that do you have that can you put that on the facebook page is that's like yes. got to be high on the on the coolest lego work you've done yeah so um so basically how that came around was uh was albert uh, i think i can tell this story because he doesn't work on the show anymore uh albert uh messaged me one day and he's like hey can you make a lego mosaic of jimmy fallon i'll make sure he gets it and I was like, oh, that's interesting because one of my um, – so just to back up a step, uh, I do Lego art as one of my side businesses. Uh, and a lot of times I make pictures of celebrities in that and sometimes you put them on Twitter and see if you can get the celebrity to go, hey, hey, cool. That's kind of fun. Um, and so so Albert knew this and, and I was – I kept thinking, you know, well, well, what celebrity could I make a picture of that would be my big break, you know? So I have ideas in my mind like – People like, you know, like Ellen DeGeneres, I think, would be would be big. Right. That'd if you huge. could convince her to put the picture on the show, that's that's a huge amount of publicity in a big hurry. Right. Yeah. Um, the question is, then, will they? Because they're pretty savvy to these things. They know, you know, what they're up against kind of thing. Um, so anyways, Albert, I think, was was trying to help me answer that question. And so he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure that he gets it. Right. So for me, it's a little bit of a of an expense. You're talking about a couple hundred bucks worth of Lego. Lego's not cheap to start with. Wow. Uh, there's a board. There's some shipping involved. You I, know, it's a 30 by 30 piece. Dave did one of me. I'm looking at it right now. I should, <laughs> I should pay right. you back for this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I made this picture of him and I sent it down there and, you know, didn't hear about anything for a little while. And so then your brain's going like, well, okay, what's the... The worst case scenario is I don't get any kind of picture back. I never hear about it again. And Albert's like, yeah, no, he never saw it. You know, that's the worst case scenario. So and I've spent like 400 bucks wow. kind of throwing it away just on a, on a chance. The best case scenario is, you know, oh, Jimmy saw it. He loved it. He wants to fly you out and have you on the show. That's probably not going to happen. But that's your your best case scenario, right? That's your your leap to stardom kind of thing. Um so the, the, the answer was somewhere in the middle. So basically, Albert was able to get a picture of Jimmy Fallon with the mosaic, not fully unwrapped. It still had the, the packaging on the corners. 
<laughs> so it's like every time I look at the picture, I'm like, oh, why couldn't we have just finished unwrapping it, right? But it's a picture of Jimmy Fallon with my mosaic, and I was able to, you know, throw that on Twitter, and I got, you know, a couple radio interviews and, you know, newspaper things out of that. Uh, I never heard back from Jimmy Fallon directly. Albert says he saw it, and he thought it was really cool. And then a couple months later, I talked to Albert, and he was like, yeah, I kind of got in a little bit of trouble about that. And I was like, well... <laughs> Because I asked him, I said, is it okay for me to use this picture? Can I tweet it? He said, yes. So anyways, uh, and then Jimmy didn't renew his contract. So you know what? Too bad. <laughs> wow. So that's my Jim, that's my Jimmy Fallon story. That's but it's fantastic because when I've got it in my portfolio book at an event, people stop and they're like, holy crap, it's Jimmy Fallon. Oh, yeah. It looks like you did a commission for him. As long as yeah. nobody asks any questions, then you know, who cares? That's a that no, that no that's It's a really good piece, too. Um, I love it. I had mine. So I have mine right beside my computer um and i had it in a, on a different wall but it's better like you want to see these lego mosaics from afar well not from afar but from an appropriate distance right so you really get it and um from where i'm sitting i'm probably the only person who can tell that it's a picture of me because it's like <laughs> three feet away from me right but the reason i put it there is because when my office door is open it's like the perfect distance so it's like right when you walk in you see it and you're like yeah it's a little portrait my buddy did thanks I found with um, with things like uh, like Comic Expo, right? Our version of Comic Con here in Calgary. Uh, I have a booth there pretty much every year, and so what I started doing after a while was going, okay, what celebrity would I really like to meet? Uh, <laughs> so I could do a mosaic of that celebrity. And generally, when you walk over to their line holding a giant thirty by thirty picture, they're intrigued, and often they'll be like, "Don't stand, no, come up here, <laughs> show me that. What is that?" Right. And sometimes it's great. Sometimes they're like really excited about it. Sometimes it's a whatever. It's just something. I'll sign it and off you go. I have a, you know a couple of funny stories. Phil Lamar, who does a lot of voices, was on Mad TV, did voices for, for Futurama and the Justice League and things like that. Right. He was great. He was really excited. I did one of of a Hermes, his character from Futurama, and got him to sign it. And he was like, "Wow, this is fantastic. This is really exciting." He's like, he's like, um. Um, can I get a picture uh, of it with you? Uh, with, and I was like, yeah, sure. And I'm trying to hold it to the side. He's like, no, no, I want you in the picture. And so I was like, okay, great. And I was like, hey, can I get a picture of you with it? And he was like, oh, you know, they're charging for those. <laughs> <laughs> you just took a picture of me. Come on. <laughs> that was kind of fun. Oh, uh, and then, you know, I, I did I did one of the, uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Weta Workshop. So it's a workshop in New Zealand that does a lot of practical and special effects for movies. Okay. They did all the Lord of the Rings stuff. They did the King Kong stuff for Peter Jackson. They do amazing work. You've seen their work, definitely. Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, and so they had a giant booth pretty much for the last few years at, at Expo. So I actually made their logo, uh, like a smaller version of their logo, because I knew one of the guys that worked there was a big, big Lego fan. And so I made the logo, and I thought, I'm just going to bring it over there. I'm going to say basically – I made this for you guys. It's giant and heavy. If you don't want to take it home, I will understand. I won't be insulted. But, you know, you guys have brought me a lot of enjoyment through your movies over the year. And this is just something I wanted to do. And so it turned out the CEO, uh, Richard uh, Taylor, was there. And he was the nicest guy on the planet. And he was just like, oh, this is – the word he used was exquisite, which was, you know, like, whoa, that's kind of mind-blowing. And he gave me, you know, all the art books from the Hobbit movies and that. And wow. that was fantastic. So it's kind of like – almost like a currency now. I like to – you know, I met uh, – Will Wheaton is a big Lego fan, so every 
every time he's in town, he'll come over after the show closes. He'll come over to the booth and, you know, chat with all the Lego people and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. That's neat, man. Has any have any of them paid you for the work? No, I've never. Uh, well, and I don't know if it's because, um, you know, they don't like it enough right. or if it's because they think. I think they're presented with so many things at those kind of shows yeah. that they don't know. Maybe this is something that you own or you bought or something, and they they wouldn't presume to. Yeah, and plus to you're not try a... to buy it from you or something. But, but no, I've never actually had one of them like request a commission or anything. You're also not like a Mexican kid selling chiclets. You know, it's not like there's some sort of guilt associated with like <laughs> if you could buy the four hundred dollars worth of Lego, you're probably not so hard up that you know <laughs> I need to take pity on you for this, but. No, I don't know. It's just it's interesting though. Like the uh, it sounds to me like you got a trade though from the uh, would you say WADA? What was the name? It's not WADA. Uh, Weta. Weta, the World Anti Doping Agency. W E T A Weta. Right. So it, he, you said like he traded you stuff, like he gave you. Well, yeah, those I, books I, and I, stuff? I gave them that stuff, and then later he came back, and because you know Canadians and New Zealanders, we can't you know possibly have someone do something very nice for us without trying to make up for it in some way, and. Right. You know, even the score. So yeah, he 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 brought over a couple little gifts and stuff like that. So well, that's cool. Yeah, it was great. Very memorable. And I he signed a little Gandalf figure for me that I've got sitting on my desk. Why still. did he, Why did he sign it though? Why did he, well? Because I don't know. Ian McKellen wasn't there. I don't know. That's weird. That <laughs> they, did, uh, they didn't make a Richard Taylor figure. It's, it's like my nephew comes by. Hey kid, here I'm just gonna sign this hockey puck. You don't play <laughs> hockey. Don't worry about it. Just take this. Should sign things that other people have made famous, like a Dairy well, Queen Blizzard cup. There you go, kid. Let me just autograph this one for you. <laughs> so the problem I have now is that I get all these guys to sign these pieces, but these pieces, like I said, they're thirty inches by forty-five inches or whatever, right? They're gigantic, right. and so at some point, I'm like, mm, I might need to start taking some of these apart just to reclaim all of this really expensive Lego. Right. But I've gotten them to sign it, so. I could take the little area where they've signed it and pop that off and put it on something else, but it's it's kind of it's tricky, you know. Or people will say, "Oh, can I buy that one?" And I'm like, "Well, now I'm that guy who's reselling something that a celebrity has signed under the premise that it was for me, right? I don't I don't want to be that guy." Why so. not? That's fine. You could be that guy. I don't know. Those guys get so many people that? like, "Oh, can you sign this? It's for my nephew," and then they sell it on eBay for a thousand dollars, and uh, it's just kind of. I don't know. Oh, that's a racket! Did you see? Yeah. Um, um, what's his name? Uh, Jordan Spieth. Are you <laughs> about to ask you about professional golf, Dave? The answer might be no, but <laughs> Jordan Spieth. Is, uh, sorry, is he is he also Tiger Woods? <laughs> he, he almost. He actually took a record away from Tiger Woods at Augusta National a couple oh. of years ago. But anyway, um, Spieth like cracked on these um, on these golfers. Uh, not golfers, golf fans rather, who were like autograph hounds, right? And they're trying to like get a whole bunch of stuff signed because they put it up on eBay, but they were like reaching over little kids. And Spieth just lost it on him. He's like, you guys he dropped a couple F-bombs on him and said, you guys are just trying to make money off of what we do. Like, stop it. We're here to sign autographs for the fans and for the kids, not to fill your coffers. But I don't know how you stop that. Well, absolutely. And I, I mean, like, that that's the thing is I don't want to become that guy. Mm-hmm. If someone was like a diehard fan, and most of the time they're smart enough, they, they'll sign it to you. They won't sign it right. just their name, right? They'll put, you you know, to Dave or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to become that guy. If someone guy was like a diehard, you know, Nathan Fillion fan, and he's like, I have to have that. I could always build him another one right. that wasn't signed, and then he can take it and get it signed, right? 
So I could do that. But that that autograph is my sort of, you know, this is my little memento of meeting that person. So can I sell these things after you die? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's a that's a heartfelt conversation your kid is going to have with you, Dad. When you're dead, can I sell all this Lego? So I'm trying to figure out for this year who to make a mosaic of. So um, here, let me call it up. The you're talking about for the uh, for Expo. Calgary Expo 2017. Yeah, you can you can bring it up. So the big biggest name so far, uh, the guy who plays Doctor Who right now. I'm not a huge Doctor Who Who fan anymore. That's not Benedict Cumberbatch. No, it's no. He's Sherlock. I thought he did Doctor Who too, didn't he? For like a day. Uh, no, he I, might have been I, on there one episode or I'm something. Sure I don't I'm know. Wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong. Okay, I'm, um, I'm looking at it here. John Cusack is coming. Oh, gross point blank. I'm a little tempted to do the famous ghetto blaster scene from uh, uh, Say Anything. It's a little cliche, but oh, dude, you know, it's obvious who you have to do. You have to do Jay and Silent Bob. And that was another one that I was actually, I actually have already, well, I don't know if I should say it publicly or not, but I sort of approached Expo. I was like, hey, I could do this and we could have it because they're, they're doing their podcast while they're in town. Oh, really? So I was like, what if I did this? You could put it at the door or something like that. I've done that a few times because, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I actually have sent them an image. So, Hey, Mark Muir is coming. Bring, uh, yeah, Mark's a buddy of mine. Yeah, yeah, I bring this up. Mark Muir is, um, well, if he's a buddy of yours, you you describe him then. Mark Muir is a really super talented uh, improviser from Edmonton. He's been improvising for a very long time. He's a insanely charismatic and really good-looking fella, and he is the voice of uh, Commander Shepard in the Mass Effect video games. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, yeah, he's okay. super popular because of that alone. Because he is, um, I was just in Edmonton for a couple of days, and I walked by the Varscona Theater. Yeah, that's what it's called. Yep. And yep. Um, they they've been doing this like soap opera for decades there. They said it's like season twenty six of this soap Di- opera called uh, Dynasty. Dynasty yeah. I it's called. And I just yeah. remember like I saw so I saw Mark's picture and saw his name on the bill, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. He's still uh, still rocking this thing. Yeah, that's neat. Local local. Yeah, I good. consider Alberta local talent, which it is. This is an awesome lineup, man. Um, Kevin Sorbo, Christian Nairn, who was Hodor in uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's her name? What's um, uh, Eleven from uh, Stranger Things is going to be there? Oh, yeah. B- uh, Millie Bobby, Bobby, Bobby Brown. Brown, I think, or Bobby Millie Brown. or Millie Bobby Millie, Brown. What's Millie that? Vanilli. Or yeah, it's like it's such a curse. Why not just ditch the Bobby so that nobody ever has to have that horrible recollection? It could be a, a a SAG thing or something, right? There might be somebody who has that name oh, already. It's like Samuel L. Jackson. Um, That's right. The Tick is going to be there. The Tick. Patrick oh, uh, Warburton. Patrick Warburton. Yeah, he might Putty. be a fun one too because I could do a like American uh, Dad image, right? Because the the com- the uh, animated stuff always works really well. It's very easy to to uh, pixelate that stuff at a smaller scale, right? Um, man, oh man, they've done such an awesome job with this expo, haven't they? It's it's really fun, and it's been going on for a long time. And there's always so there's some guests that keep coming back, but I think it's more because the fans really like them, so they keep bringing those people back. Right. Um, but there's always some new and interesting people, and they try to shake it up and and come up with different uh, different guests and and different interests. So it's not always just the same, you know, five old. Uh, actors or whatever. Um, I don't know if you have your Facebook open, Roger, but I just sent you the image 
that I was thinking about doing by a, a Facebook Messenger. Okay. The okay. Jay and Silent Bob uh, image. So, it, of course, the rest of you can't see it. I might put it up on the Facebook yeah, page, but it's the putting up, putting on the lipstick, uh, Jay putting on the lipstick while he's, you know, doing his little dance in uh, Clerks. Uh, Clerks? I haven't seen Clerks in ages. All right, I like that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you pixelated it. Yeah, that's that's what it would look like when I when I build it. <laughs> I like that. You can, yeah, I think you should do that. I'll put this on the uh, I'll put this on the website and, and maybe we'll share it on the Facebook as well. But cool, yeah, um, yeah, that makes sense to me that you would do Jay and Silent Bob. Well, I mean, I've I've known like known his work, uh, Kevin Smith's work, for a very long time, and of course, he's a podcaster and used to listen to his podcast a lot more. He started getting a little marijuana y for a while. Yeah, there's that. And it got hard to listen to after a while. Do you know this guy Mario Bucci, by the way, who's got Lego listed as one of the four things he does? <laughs> he's a creator. No. I no. should find out about him. I, Is I he just, one of the guests? He's one of the creator guests, yeah. Ah, uh, okay. I, I just look at what they've done with the Calgary Expo and how I I really think, I'd love to talk to the creators of it one day, but I really think that they went like like balls out, all in. We are either going to have a successful thing or we're going to go so like joke-tastically bankrupt in the first year. Because I think that they like saw the opportunity and, and where some people might go, yeah, let's build it slow. They just went, F it. We're going all the way there, like hip to hip on this one. Well, and I know, I mean, I, I kind of know all of the folks who run it, uh, some better than others. Um, this sort of a, the head man in charge, uh, Kandrix, is super cool. He's like, if you see him walking around the floor, you would never know that this is the guy who runs the whole thing. He's got a little backpack on. He's got his earphones on. He's totally like oblivious to the rest of the world. And he's got a thousand things that he's got to deal with all at the same time. Uh, I know the guy who runs the floor, who takes care of all the logistics and stuff. And that guy just, he never stops moving. If you see him, he's like, Hey, and he keeps going and he doesn't stop and you would not expect him to, but they're, they are, they're a really great group of people for sure. Nice. Uh, and I, yeah, yeah, we could we could arrange. So we could see about getting one or more of them uh, to talk to us on the podcast. Yeah, we should we should do that. We'll give them a month though, because uh, they're probably like ridiculously busy right now. It's yeah, like, it's only six yeah, weeks yeah. away. Um, exactly, and it's such a yeah such a monster event. Um, I love the fact that it's in Calgary too. I love the fact that I don't know, man. I, I just I grew up here, and it was you know always had the knock and the oil and beef and cowboys and you know rednecks and blah blah blah. And I'm like, shut up. You don't hang out with my friends. You don't know what's going on in this city. So I love the fact that we've got like that parade. What do they call it? The the Walk of Wonder, or Parade of Wonder, or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I what should know this. World of Wonders, or yeah. not, this is not a branding exercise for the expo. We can talk about it colloquially, but no. But I, I just I just love the fact that that exists in this city because it it makes so much sense that it would based on the experiences that I had growing up here. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's a great weekend. It's you know, it's there's a, it's fun. People watching. It's fun looking at people in costumes. I love the fact that the nerdiest of nerds can feel like they belong and fit yeah, in. Right. Right. It's the four days where everybody else dresses like them for a change. <laughs> um, I've gotten to know a lot of the vendors over the years. I love talking. I love doing panels. So they have panels, and I always sign up to moderate some of the panels. And it's always, again, it's creators, mostly comic book creators I end up getting. And I love talking to them and find out, like, what's your process? How do you work? What do you think about? Where do you get your ideas? You know, trying to come up with those questions that aren't 
the questions that you can just see them die inside a little every time they get asked, which is like, you know, who do you like to draw more, Spider-Man or Superman or, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And it's just like, oh. <laughs> so I asked, you know, I, one of the fellows that was here, um, I was asking him, like, well, what do you like to do when you're in town? He's like, well, I go to museums, whatever town I'm in. I go to the museums and I look at the artwork because that's where I get my ideas from. And it, And he really got me down this path of this concept where – um, if you're a comic book artist, for instance, the only way you're ever going to get inspired is by not looking at other people's comic book art, right? Yeah. All that's going to do is make you derivative of what they're doing. Right. So he goes outside of the field and he finds other things that inspire him and he brings those into his work. And I'm like, that's, that's fantastic, right? That's super interesting. For me, that was like anyone who was listening to that probably just, you know, gains a huge amount of insight into this guy's work. But mostly, they mostly just want to know whether he likes drawing, you know, Spider-Man more than Superman. So, here's something I don't understand about art. Okay, if I paint a naked baby, okay, okay, you're gonna look at that and you'd be like, "That's weird, Roger. Like, paint a lot of naked babies. What's going on here?" <laughs> right. And if I paint enough naked babies, you're gonna be like, "Ah." Uh, Cause for concern. You're not going to want me to hang around the the kids and the family, maybe, and probably not going to come over to my house very much. But if I put wings on their backs, now I'm all of a sudden I'm tapping into a heightened level of sensitivity, <laughs> right? And it's like I was thinking about this because, like, uh, you know, there, there. I think that there's a time when the the master painters were all trying to like outdo each other on religious art. To the point where you got like Michelangelo, like letting paint blind him, dripping into his eyes, and he's like, "Oh, I can't see anymore." But holy shit, wait till you see this church when I'm done with it. Nude children everywhere, right? Like, <laughs> I should, I don't know. I just, it's, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of weird stuff going on in the art world at that time because that was like the height of of nobody's making TV shows. Best you could do is like sequester yourself for eight months and come out with a canvas covered in oil, right? <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I mean, I bet you if you sat down and talked to those guys, they'd have opinions on that stuff too because they get hit up. They go, they go against that line of, you know, is this crossing the line? Is too much, you know, is there too much boob in this particular, you know, comic book or not? Because they know that that will sell the comic book. Right. But if you do too much, then people start backlashing against you and saying that you're not, you're being, you know, anti-feminist and it's yeah. I bought a comic that had like a centerfold in it. Anybody who's got Wildcats number one knows what I'm talking about. And I was I loved it. I'm like, I'm buying all these. What, there's only Rob, six? Damn it. Rob Liefeld. Uh yeah, see I was never that into it that I knew who the <laughs> artists were, the writers were. I just like the character, right? He's a very controversial uh guy. He had a very, very unique drawing style. If you were to type his name in, and they, you would find a website that had like fifty examples of super bad work that he's done. Rob Liefeld, L I E, L I E F E L D, I believe it is. All right, uh, sorry. What am I looking for? Fifty. Uh, put in, put in Captain America. Put in Rob Liefeld, Captain America, oh, the and top you'll see forty worst Rob Liefeld drawings. Yeah, is that good enough? And, and the the Captain America will be almost up at number one. He's got a picture of Captain America where he's standing almost sideways, and the anatomy is so out of whack that it'll just make you laugh That's, to look at it. This has to be fantastic. Um, it's great because I'm, I'm not a big a big art guy, so they'll point out things like, oh, look at this woman's foot. It's almost the same size as her head, right? 
option. Wow. Or the fact that he doesn't actually know how to draw feet. So often he just has little clouds at the bottom of the picture as though there's dust around their feet because he hasn't quite mastered the foot or something to that effect. Yeah, some of this stuff is pretty awful. (laughs) Like just not strong. And there'd be like examples of things where he obviously had like a gun in someone's hand and the editor was like, you can't have a gun in that character's hand. So he's drawn something else, but it still looks like they're holding a gun, in, <laughs> except they're holding an orange now. But clearly they were supposed to be holding a gun, things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny stuff. Too funny. I'm gonna waste it's a good, some, waste some good half hour. Of, yeah. Yeah, for sure it is. Um, oh, man, you triggered me. I was going to I had something. I wanted to go back half a step because I like. Was it was it about art? Was it about pornography? Was it about? Might have been about painters. Might have been about art and all the. eh. Art's tricky. See, like I was saying, I do I do the Lego. We call it Lego art. Um, but I found, and this is just me, my personal opinion, that um, I don't get a lot of love in the art world so much locally. Right. I don't get a lot of artists calling me up and saying, hey, let's work on something together. I don't get a lot of play from the local art galleries or anyone really involved in the arts. Having said that, uh, uh, Kada has been very kind to me. I've gotten a grant or two in the past, but that's more, I think, because I apply for them, you know, as opposed to them going, oh, you should have this. Um, But the business community, who the artists will immediately start railing against and saying, oh, business, blah, blah. Businesses love the Lego art. (laughs) That's get a lot of work from the business community, so I'm a little more pro business these days. That's better. That goes back to what we were talking about. Like, who cares what the artists think of you? Like, you know, you just you just want your you just want to have your public, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny because in my head, it's that whole thing. Like, I've made it as an artist when the artists have accepted you. But you know, there's that, and then getting paid is pretty good too. So yeah, but like, you should get paid. Like, would you? Do you ever make it as an artist? Like, isn't that just basically saying, oh, I've I've maxed out my creativity. I've got nothing left. It's like <laughs> I can know, do no more. I'm the Michael Bay of artists now. The, <laughs> the thing that I remembered, by the way, and um, I one time I was in a, I was in a museum in uh, where'd that be Madrid, the Prado. So it's like one of these old European museums, right? With like just boatloads of masterworks, but all the stuff that like is like, oh wow, Leonardo da Vinci paintings, like the Mona Lisa. No stuff that we found and attributed we think he did it like reasonably educated guess that he did these things so anyway a lot of that stuff right so i'm i'm I'm, wa- I'm walking through and there's a guy uh, like an art student with an easel and he's set up in front of like a painting i forget what the painting was i think it was called like el cardinal monsignor or something like that and he's painting it like he's copying it right so he's just he's staring at the painting on the wall doing his own version on his easel. So I thought, oh, this looks kind of cool. I'm going to take a picture of it. So I take out my camera to take a picture of it, and security's on top of me. No photographia, no photographia, or whatever. I was like, wait a second here. I'm not allowed to take a picture. But this asshole's allowed to commit art fraud, which is what he's do- He's committing art fraud in a museum in broad daylight, and I'm not allowed to gather evidence. And if Phil Lamar was there, he would have charged you for that photograph, too. So... <laughs> It made zero sense to me. It was it was honestly one of the most incongruous moments of my life, where what I was doing was wrong. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's because it's a photograph. Is that the problem here? If I sit, if I just come in here and paint, it's going to be a okay with everybody. How is that <laughs> legit? 
I always find it interesting too, because I mean, I, I, you know, I, I consider myself fairly cultured, but I have no, you know, deep knowledge of of the art world or or that kind of thing, and it's I come up against it all the time. Like I said, we've talked about before. I watch a ton of TV, watch a ton of movies, but all it takes is something like, you know, David Chase uh, doing a, a a shot by shot walkthrough of the final scene of The Sopranos. Right. Right. You've you've yeah. you're familiar with The Sopranos. You've probably seen the final scene i'm sure a lot of people have but he there was a thing where he did a couple of years ago i want to say and he walks you through he's like this shot is this this shot and then we do this and this brings up this and he walks you through it and it's just like i there's like 20 percent of that is what i caught but there's so much more going on there than i would ever have figured out you know so it just makes you go oh, okay yeah i'm still a rookie i'm still learning <laughs> i'm still way behind on this stuff and the art world's the same you get someone who really knows their art and they explain to you why that, you know, $50 million picture is actually worth $50 million. And you're kind of like, oh, yeah, no, I didn't get any of that. But, I you find, know, I guess if you're not really an expert, you don't – you're not really an expert. So Yeah, I find wine that way too. Like when I'm drinking wine with people who know a lot more about like the types of grapes and, and you know, what makes the regions they grow in and like, you know, so characteristic. And I, like I enjoy that because yeah. not like – not all wines taste the same, and I know it's entirely subjective. Just because something costs a hundred bucks and is really old doesn't mean you have to like it. But I think that you should. It's better, like like it says the guy's drinking an old Milwaukee light while he's doing this <laughs> podcast. But but it's like I think you should drink for a reason. You should enjoy drinking. You should enjoy the booze you're having. I'm doing a bourbon tasting, by the way. First bourbon tasting. I'm like, nice. April the sixth. Yeah. Sold, I think. Uh, the Freakonomics guys have have wrecked wine for me altogether with their. But that was such with, bullshit. Like that was really dumb. I thought because and particularly for Freakonomics, because all they did. So go on, explain the the thing. All I remember did. was the one section where they were talking about they had a. I can't remember if it was a wine tasting club or if it was a special group that they brought together, and uh, so they did a you know a blind tasting, and then uh, I think it was three different wines they had. So one of them was you know like a forty dollar wine, and then they had a five dollar wine that they threw in there. And then the third one was the same $5 wine again. Right. And then, of course, people were saying, well, this one's much better than that. And they're talking about, you know, it's that whole thing where people don't know what they're actually drinking. And so they're, you know, pontificating on on whatever. Right. So all that episode did was prove how pretentious that Harvard wine tasting club was. Because <laughs> that was what it was. It was like these Ivy League professors and they, you know, they, they it was like a, a penis size competition every week to see who had the most expensive or most extravagant bottle. And it's like, dude, I can tell you, I have tasted, because I have some friends in the wine business, I've tasted really, 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 really expensive bottles of wine, like four-figure bottles of wine, and did not like them. And of my favorite wines, like the ones that I buy routinely and drink on Wednesday nights, eh, 10 bucks a bottle. So, yeah. like, and it, so it says nothing about the quality of either wine. It just tells you everything about how much I know and what I like to drink. <laughs> and I was so disappointed in that episode of Freakonomics because I thought it was beneath them. It just makes me stay away from wine altogether. I, I can't. I don't really drink a lot. I like using it in cooking. Yes. Uh, my favorite, uh, you know this well, but my favorite moment in all of cooking, the favorite scent, is uh, when you're making a risotto, and you've already got the onion in there, and it's got you know the butter and the onion, and it's heated up just a little bit, and you put the rice in there for a couple minutes, and it's just starting to turn translucent. And then you dump like a cup of wine in there, and just the aroma that comes off is amazing. It's like the best smell in the world, I think. Got to cook. Um, da, da, da. There is, uh, 
Yeah. I'm kind of hung up on the Freakonomics thing because. <laughs> <laughs> keep going. You're triggered, Rod. So keep going. Well, yeah, no, they do a lot of cool stuff on that show. I just, I, I thought that that one was like super low hanging fruit and they were just trying to beat up on these guys who are kind of pretentious and don't know shit about wine. And I get that. Like that, that's cool. But I, I turned to that, that uh, podcast for an education on so many things, right? Like I listen to that because I want to have, and by the way, let me just, <clears throat> this is a, an umbrella that I think the world needs. There's three things that need to be taught in school that I, I, would, I would volunteer to write the curriculum. How government works, how money works, and how cognitive bias works, right? And they don't teach any of that stuff in school, and they need to. Right. But So going back to this, it's like whenever I am listening to a Freakonomics episode and I go, at the end of it, I go, oh, I always thought it was the other way, but that just proved that I've always been wrong. To me, that's awesome. That's an awesome thing. Do you, like, does that make sense? You like uh, discovering that your opinion has been wrong about something, and then being like deciding that you flipped. Yeah, because then I'm instantly better. How so? Well, okay. So here's an example, like a real example from my life. Right, for most of my twenties, most of my twenties, an entire decade, the third decade of my existence. I'm talking about like fully for one third of my life here where I'm out on my own making my own decisions. I believed homeopathic medicine was an actual thing that benefited people. Okay. okay. Uh, can, I, can I phrase that differently? I bought into that bullshit. Like I thought natura- naturopathy and homeopathy was legit and it was like far superior to Western medicine because it wasn't chemical based and the whole big pharma and all of that bonkers stupid stuff. And because of that, I had some problems that never got proper treatment, physical pain and some other mental issues, right? And it was only when I, I started, um, I had some people in, present to me evidence and like research and, and like arguments and facts and all the things that go together to make a case uh, that I finally just went, all right, well, I guess I don't need to dig in here. I'm not invested in homeopathic medicine. And I've been convinced, I've seen enough proof now like the evidence, like I've I've stipulated what I would need to see, and then I saw that. So now it's really only pride. Pride is the only issue now. So if I can just get over my pride, then no one will ever know I was an idiot for 10 years. And by the way, I started taking aspirin tablets whenever I had a hangover, and my life improved immediately. <laughs> so that that's my point, right? The moment right. I was willing to accept that I mistakenly believed something and and just saw the evidence and converted... I noticed an immediate improvement in my life. And we could we could all stand a little more of that, I think, in this world, in this day and age, especially where everybody's so divided on everything, you know? Yeah, but, but it's because people don't value being wrong. It's like if you got if you were wrong on a test in high school, you got to learn the correct way and then you got to get it right the next time. It's not like they just took you out of the world at that point and said, All right, you're gonna be a minor. That's it. <laughs> you know, that's you're an idiot. You failed. The the, uh, the Tim Minch. Uh, do you know Tim Minchin? Are you familiar with him? I think I've heard that name before. Australian. He's a singer comedian. Okay. If you will, if you will, um, he's got a great eight minute sort of beat poem called Storm, and it's about going to dinner and meeting a girl who's into alternative medicine and all the sort of you know fairy stuff and that kind of thing. You'll you'll get a kick out of it. But uh, his his big point he makes right in the middle of the song is he's talking about they're talking about alternative medicine, and he says you know he says do you know what they call alternative medicine that has been proven to work? <laughs> it's called medicine. <laughs> Fantastic. 
fantastic. The 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 um, you know, there's a couple examples. Of, I'm going crazy on this thing right now. And I got some research to do. I I just didn't get around to it yet. So I I'm not etching this in stone. But I'm telling you what my suspicion is, and I'm going to try to prove it wrong. But you know this whole Trump canceled Meals on Wheels thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard the headlines at least? Yeah, that they well they made a bunch of cuts in the budget, or they the budget came out and there was no funding for Meals on Wheels and a couple other uh, like kids programs and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, it seems, it seems really absurd to me that you would try to manage Meals on Wheels at the federal level. Yeah. So my my suspicion is that the funding was to programs that distributed Meals on Wheels. Okay. So yeah, I I don't know. You're right. I I also don't know. So if the government was going to cut the funding, then they're either callous or they just needed demonstrable proof that this is having the effect that the government promised taxpayers it would have. If it hasn't done that, then they have an obligation to taxpayers to no longer fund the program if it's ineffective. So that program That's, at the state yeah, level that, would then need another way to get the funding if the Meals on Wheels is important. Right. That sounds about right. Okay. So I have to go through this and figure it all out, but... It just sort of shits me that it's like, oh, Donald Trump doesn't care about seniors. He's cutting the meals on wheels thing when you could argue just as easily that he clearly is no longer interested in taking money from seniors to the point where they can't afford food to fund a program that's not getting food to them. So instead giving them back money so they don't have to rely on federal assistance for dinner, they can instead just go get their own. Okay, I can see that. Well, it kind of falls in on itself, right? Yeah. I mean, his big problem, of course, is that he's, you know, an ultra wealthy person who leads an ultra wealthy lifestyle and then is now responsible for making decisions about people who are not ultra wealthy. And so it's very easy to go, well, if you know, if you just didn't, you know, fly back to New York or if your family didn't live in New York, you could have paid for all of those programs like that kind of thing. It's very easy to nitpick that sort of stuff right now. Totally is. (laughs) And it's a sport, too. I don't know. I don't want to talk about Trump. I think people need a break, but. I was one of the one of the topics that that Kayla actually on our Facebook page asked us to talk about was drug testing welfare recipients. And it's such a sexy, provocative question. Like if you just if you just left it at the question without really thinking about it, it was just going to be yes or no. Should welfare recipients be you know tested for drugs? The way you're asking what you're effectively asking is um, should there should it be OK if welfare recipients use their welfare to buy drugs? And you would probably go, well, no, probably not. There seems to be some sort of implied correlation between abuse of drugs and uh, a decreased level of productivity such that you have to be dependent on the state. So could could you turn that around and say, is it okay to not uh, help people who use drugs? <laughs> well, yeah, right. I mean, because <laughs> they already effectively do that. Medicare recipients, <laughs> for example, or or legal aid recipients and, and whatnot. But it just, it's like, for jurisdictions that have tried this, it's failed miserably. Because drug testing is far more expensive than just giving money to people. And especially when you consider that if somebody tests, does not test positive, you have wasted money testing them for drugs. For me, this is one of those, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to insult anybody, but this is one of those, I guess I call it like an eye roll issue. Whereas if, you know, someone on Facebook or someone brings it up around you like, oh, yeah, those guys, you know, if they're going to get welfare, they should be drug tested. It will force me to roll my eyes immediately because it's it's an indicator for me that you're either, you know, believe everything you read 
or, you know, that it, your opinion is coming from out of absolutely nowhere. You're just, you know, it's the same thing as the whole like, oh, why should we spend money on, you know, allowing in people to come in from Syria when we've already got people starving? And, and you're just like, oh, shut up, you know? It's like, and you know those people haven't done the homework. You know they haven't read up on the actual stats or where that money comes from. They're going, oh, yeah, no, those guys get $20,000 and homeless vets only get $5,000. And, of course, if you look through and figure it out, it's none of it's true. But you know that those people are just thrown out there because it's super easy. It's a button issue. And it's yeah. one of the things that just make me go, oh, enough, whatever. And you, you, know? also, you also know that they don't care about the surrogate topic for which they claim to care, the surrogate issue, right? Like right. the, like the one about that like that was that's an easy one in a great example you just gave which is like why are we paying for and it's always an old person right? yeah. <laughs> why are we paying for Syrians when we've got our own homeless people it's like okay so let me get this straight you've been to a homeless shelter you've been to the DI have you and you've just yeah. been thinking to yourself guys I I got to go to bad for you right you've seen uh, a lot of homeless aboriginals and i like i like to hoist another or foist another one on them go you really care about about homelessness and aboriginal populations right because they're they are disproportionately affected by it and that <laughs> you know but it's like you know that these people do not care about about the issue for which they're holding up as a surrogate and it it's, that which is why i roll my eyes like if somebody were to come and go hey um you know what, do you think welfare recipients should be drug tested then I, I, I'm like you, like, I know what you said, it's an eye roll and you don't want to offend anybody because that's not the point of trying to help each other get through these issues is to, you know, get off on the wrong foot. But let me Google that for you because like this has just been so extensively studied that a cursory search on Google will help you understand that it's a numbers game and it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, for me, that my, my, my go back to them would be immediately to start going, okay, so really what you're trying to say is you don't like the fact that, you know, people who are on drugs are getting some of your tax dollars. But shouldn't we be dealing with the fact that these people who need money, who are homeless, are addicted to drugs? So is it drug enforcement? Is that what you want to do is increase the amount of drug programs? Should we be spending more tax dollars on, you know, helping people who have drug problems so that they're not on welfare anymore? Because that's kind of what I'm hearing, right? <laughs> so, I mean... Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go I, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know s s strap on the foil here or whatever they said in Slapshot with you, but I can't get there with the conversation. I can't get to that point of it because to me the issue is not it has nothing to do with again what I call the surrogate issue, which is drug use amongst welfare recipients. To me the problem is the way it's insidious the way we look down on the bottom quintile or the people who live below the poverty line. When we know from study after study after study that if you just gave cash to people who are in need, they predominantly spend it on things that will improve their life. So like if, if you took 10 welfare families and you gave them each $500, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it's like nine of them would spend it on food and shelter, and one of them might spend it on booze and lottery tickets. But it's, it's like... The, Within some kind of shelter. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they went to the track with a, well, they had a free buffet. The sheltered track, they got food. No, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm making light now. But you see my point, right? And it's like, let's talk about the real issue here, which is more insidious. It's the way you view certain segments of society that aren't you. And that's the actual problem. And we can see where that's brought us to in, in so many different ways, like going as far back as, as you know, educators saying, well, the, the Negro is not as intelligent or in Canada here. Oh, you, we've got to beat the savage out of the Indian, you see. It's like, 
that's the insidious. The, 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 the hard part is not necessarily the horrible things we're going to do to individuals. It's our outlook about these people in general that is far more insidious. And look where it's brought us to. It's all that I got mine too bad for you, right? A, a lot of it stems from yeah. that, I think, right? But I get that. I think that's why the 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 Trump guys or the you know the right wingers are 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 firing back right now because they're like, I've been paying so much, you know. So it's like I can't blame people for asking the the welfare question, welfare drug question, on one hand. But it's like you see so many people who who have paid money into these progressive governments and their taxes have gone up and up, and they're like, when do I get mine? Like. I'm supporting a lot of people and I'm not getting ahead. Well, and, you know, if I can go full ultra left here for a second, the the bigger problem being that none of those poor people are the ones making the rules right now. It's all the guys who have billions of dollars. I mean, every single guy in the U.S. Senate right now, probably a millionaire at least, they're creating rules that help millionaires make more money. And those guys at the bottom, the middle class is disappearing and like it's becoming more and more of a you know divided society. I think we're going to see way more of that kind of stuff popping up in in the immediate future. Yeah, but look who's responsible for that, right? Like the the people who who like I said I will never be a politician, particularly in Alberta because the pay sucks. The job sucks and the pay sucks. Like if you want me to be an MLA, I'll tell you this right now. If you make the salary half a million bucks a year, I'll do it. And I'll tell you why. Because first of all, I, I have to listen to people complain all the time, and they don't they read the newspaper they want, not the newspaper they need. Okay, I got to listen to them complaining all the time. I got to sit at a desk and take it because that's the job. Then you got to be on that highway for well, it's only like thirteen weeks a year or whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, uh, we're putting people in in jobs that pay peanuts. And so when somebody comes along and says, "Hey, tell you what, do me this favor, write this into the legislation, I'll take care of you down the road sometime," of course they do it. They all leave Washington millionaires. Look at all the legislation. Like, there's this. You want to get like a, a, a an on ramp put up? It's a fifty page, you know, thing, and it's got some sort of like easement onto some guy's farm in there. <laughs> like, like, do you know what I mean? It's it's the whole thing is built on payola, basically, and it's because, well, in the states it's a bit of a different story, but up here, man, I would never do that job because it won't take care of you. So how do places – again, and they, this may be sort of, you know, the, we're just getting the good stuff. But, you know, the Swedens, the Norways, the countries that are always listed in the top places in the world to live and have the most social equality and that kind of thing. How do those guys get around that problem? How do they make life good for everybody instead of just the rich guys? I don't think they do. I think we just read those stories. I have no experience on the ground in Norway or Sweden or what it's like. I know it's dark there, just like it's dark in none of it. Um, and I We need – we need to get a Swedish person on the podcast and find out. But then we could select whoever we wanted, right? We like, just need to find some Swedish podcaster when we know nothing about their politics but, and grill them a little. <laughs> but I don't know, man. I suspect it's just like everywhere, right? I, I bet you there are people who are, are working at um, what, what's the big Swedish company? Well, it was Ericsson and Sony bought it. I don't know. I, like, Ikea? <laughs> Thank you, obviously. But it's like, you know, they're paying taxes in the neighborhood of 60% or whatever it might be who probably think to themselves, I'd like to keep a little bit of this cash. You know, or it's the same in Finland or in Norway where they're like, I love the whole, we should be more like Norway. Yeah, you want to make missiles? Is that what you want to do? You want to make gigantic armaments and sell them indiscriminately across the Middle East? Because we could be a lot like Norway. 
More uh, so you want to pay a ton of taxes is what you're, what you're telling me. That's what people are like. like a ton like, of tax. Yeah, just uh, they they got a trillion dollars in the bank. Yeah, doesn't that suck? Can you imagine if you had a trillion dollars in the bank and you were eating salted fish three times a day? Like, when's the last time you heard of like a great Norwegian dominating anything other than cross country skiing? Or you know, your dad's a millionaire, but you have to work at McDonald's because he won't give you any of his money. <laughs> that yeah, that was the best. The, the best line I ever heard about that. You know, they've got a million and $1.2 million for every man, woman, and child in Norway. It's not a bank machine, dude. Like, like people can't just roll down to the, you know, Aston Villa dealership and Aston Martin dealership. No, Aston <laughs> Villa Aston dealership Villa. and buy themselves a football team. <laughs> wow, that was an interesting... I would have expected that. I would have been the first person to mention Aston Villa on the podcast, but you've taken that away. Where is Aston Villa, wow. by the way? I have no idea. Uh, I think they play out of London, actually. It could be. Oh, I'm going to be so wrong about that. But. Uh, well, aren't there like 10 teams in London? I remember when I saw like the, what is it, what is it, the dispersal or dispersion of uh, f- football teams in the premiership? And there's like three pockets where like all the teams are. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's th- uh, Manchester's got a couple and uh, uh, Liverpool's got a couple and London's got, I think, three or four that play out of... Right. And big teams, Chelsea and Arsenal and uh, Tottenham Hotspur, they're all playing out of London. I don't know where Aston Villa plays from. Someone's screaming into the podcast right now, but I'm like, I don't care about that team so much. So uh, where is – how about where is Aston Villa? It's probably nowhere. It's probably just a team. What well, I, I, I like that um, – I don't know. It seems to me that in, in... – <sighs> It's Birmingham. The answer is Birmingham. Alabama, really? That's a commute. Yeah. I didn't know football was so popular in Alabama. I mean, uh, English football. <laughs> They're based in Aston, Birmingham. There you go. In a, in a tiny home, a quaint cottage, really, a villa, <laughs> if you will. My other team, I cheer for Arsenal, and I don't care who knows it. And the other team I cheer for is uh, is Ware Football Club. You have to, right? Yeah, kind of have to. Yeah. Um, what what um, do you think that soccer will surpass hockey in television popularity in Canada in our lifetime? No. No? (laughs) My simple one-word answer is no. No, I mean, it hasn't in the 15 years that I've been following it. It hasn't really grown that much. There is a league now. There's the MSL. But I don't know. I don't want to crap on the MSL, but it's like it's kind of garbage soccer, to be honest. It's like that where the old pros from the good leagues go to die. That's the problem I have with it too. Like when you read the the David Beckham story and he's going to the LA Galaxy and you're like, what is it? A retirement league? That's pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But didn't big Pe- money Pele, one more year? Come didn't on, Pele play for like New York or New Jersey or something like that. Uh, Beckham? No, Pele. Oh, Pele. Pele. Yeah, he played for New York when he was. I, that was the last league before this one, I think. But there are quite a few guys like the Red Bulls, right? Yeah. <laughs> The New York Red Bulls guys. So, <laughs> see if you can guess who sponsors them. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of sort of you know my my heroes end up playing for those teams when they're too old. And by too old, I mean you know in their mid to late thirties. So past their prime anyway. But it, prime. is there like a, a a succession that you like if you're playing? I, I'm imagining the Premiership is the top tier in the world. Is it? 
Well, yeah, that's see, that's a debatable question too. In in England, the the Premiership is there's lots of leagues. Like Germany has the Bundesliga, Spain has you know La Liga, and there's all kinds of different uh, leagues, right? right? So there's there's teams that are the top teams in the world. But yeah, if you're if you're an English football player, if you're playing in the Premiership, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, you know. And I imagine like in in France, like you you know you, you grow up dreaming of playing in the Serie A or something like that. Yeah, I mean, they have, France has their own league as well. But Isn't yeah, that a Syria? Uh, no, that would be uh, Italy, Syria. Oh, okay. What was France? Um, France has... Uh, this is I think like it's, obviously a field I'm not very I think it's. I think it's called Ligue 1. <laughs> Perfect, France. Way to go, France. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I like... And on the, so basically... For anyone who's left listening that actually still cares, so what happens is you have a bunch of different leagues, right, from all mostly Europe, uh -huh. right? And so all the European teams have their own leagues, and each of those leagues have maybe the top three, maybe the top four spots. And the teams that come in one through three in 2016, the next year, will play in what they call the Champions League. Right. So you're playing the best three teams in England and the best four teams from Italy and the best three teams from France. And all those guys get together together and they play like a they play a one just sort of, you know, a points league. And then they do, a, you know, a, a knockout. So I guess they do like a round robin and then it becomes a knockout competition. How do, and you determine the best team in in, in uh, Europe. But how do you do that? Because it, it doesn't that disrupt. I mean, I guess they're good at it now, but that just seems like it's horribly disruptive for like the the, the prime league like. Yeah, it is. It's really disruptive. Um, so they have match match weeks. So you know that this week, if you're in the Champions League, you're going to be playing on Wednesday. Most of the leagues have rules that you can't play two games within you know three or four days of each other. So they'll schedule you on the Sunday that week. So you'll play Wednesday, then you'll play Sunday, and you won't play again until the following Saturday. But yeah, it creates more fixtures. It creates more injuries for players. Uh, the, the team that's running away with the English Premiership this year is Chelsea. They're not playing in the Champions League. Every other team in the top four or five is in the Champions League and has five or six extra really tough games that they've got to play. Chelsea gets to sit at home and rest for the week, and then they walk over whoever they're playing, right? right. So, And then they don't have, like, playoffs in the Premiership. You just It's just like the whole season is the thing. Yeah, if you come in first, you come in first. So you could win the, the title five weeks out if you're good enough, if you're far enough that you've mathematically... Yeah. Come ahead of those other guys. There's also what they call the FA Cup, the Football Association Cup, right. which is a knockout tournament where they take every team from the lowest of the low all the way up to the big league guys. And so it's kind of fun because you'll get a team, you know, from, you know, it could be where FC, right? Some little team from that has 9000 fans is going to play at Wembley next week against you know Chelsea <laughs> or Manchester United. And they make gobs of money from that one game. Right. Like right. that could be enough to set your club up for for a decade right wow. um and so that can be kind of fun and every once in a while you get the cup sets right where the little team comes in and knocks out the big guys and so it's kind of entertaining most of the time it's one of the big guys that wins it but every once in a while you get you know one league below some team that's really rocking it and they're playing well together and on any given sunday right yeah like right. they say yeah huh. i wish i cared more <laughs> I'd have more people to talk to, right? Because I care about baseball a little bit, but yeah. there's like no one to talk about baseball with. And it makes me a bit of a hermit in the summertime because you had a game every night. You know? Well, I'll come and watch baseball with you, and you can tell me I'm all about baseball. One of my favorite things to do is to like hang out with someone 
and experience the thing that they love uh, through their eyes because I find that super interesting. I don't need to love baseball, but I would love to go to a baseball with game with someone who loves baseball and just see how excited they get and they can tell me all the things that are super interesting about it i think that's a that's a brilliant thing to do okay so you're talking about going to a baseball game though. well in the in the past so yeah, yeah i've got a friend uh an improviser in san francisco paul killam is one of the funniest guys i've ever met and he's crazy about baseball one and the san francisco giants number two right. uh, he might flip those around i don't know but uh whenever i'm lucky enough to be in san francisco when the Giants are playing and he has, I think he's got a quarter of a season ticket or something like that. And so if I'm lucky enough to get to go with him, it's the most fun thing in the world to do because he gets so excited about it, right? He loves it. He lives for it. Right. right? You've been to that stadium in San Francisco? Yeah. That's it's fantastic. Right? Yeah. That's remarkable how, yeah, I can't imagine. Like, I, took a, I took a ferry, a water ferry to get to it. it really? Was wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I drove. Well, I didn't drive. I Ubered. What a nightmare trying to get an Uber out of like that gong show that was after the game because we were there and it was like the start of the pride uh, celebrations, too. And like we had no idea when we booked this. My wife and I drove down there on a road trip last year and we're like, man, hotels in San Francisco are super expensive. We ended up getting this place for like it was like three hundred and eighty bucks for two nights. And that included parking. So it was like a smoking deal, apparently. But yeah, we were there. We got to, we didn't know it was Pride until we went to the baseball game, and it was like r- rainbows absolutely everywhere. And uh, we're like, oh, okay, I guess it's uh, interesting. And then, but they did it up really well, right? Like they incorporated the Pride Festival into the game, which just kind of to me was like, wow, you guys really know your community, like because you know I, I don't <laughs> oh, think yeah, there's yeah, too yeah. many major league sports that would be really pumped up to have a gay party. Do you know what I mean? As well, you've got a lot of guys from some countries where they're still not too too cash about the you know the the, the gay love. So <laughs> I thought it was I, I thought it was really remarkable how how well and how um, uh, just like naturally it blended in. I guess it wasn't like they were they were stretching to to accommodate. It was just like this is who we are. It was really cool to see. So one of my favorite moments during the game when I was sitting with Paul is Paul was explaining to me, I don't even remember what. It was one, some rule or some obscure bit, or I asked him, you know, well, why does this particular thing happen? And so Paul was explaining it to me. And uh, the other team, the Do- it was, they were playing the Dodgers, the hated enemy of the San Francisco Giants. And so while he was explaining this to me, the Dodgers, it was, they were changing the teams over. And so the Dodgers fielders were coming out and, Paul was uh, – sorry, I'll sort of do it for you, but he was like, okay, so anyways, the reason that that rule – sorry, excuse me for a second. Ethier, you suck! (laughs) The reason that rule is – like, he literally had to stop for a second just to shit-talk the player who was running underneath us. And I was just like, oh, this is the best thing ever. (laughs) I love it, man. I was in Boston with my dad, and, like, there's all these T-shirts that say Jeter Swallows. (laughs) <laughs> on them because in New York they had a T-shirt that said "Nomar sucks," uh, and I was just like, "Wow, how did like?" And the you know the the state the team's cool with this, I guess. It's just who they are. So bad. the year that I went to see that game, uh, the Giants won the World Series. Right. Okay. And then so last summer, 
Uh, I was at a, uh, we talked about this before, I was at, at a, uh, a Lego show, big Lego show, Brickworld in Chicago. And a high school buddy of mine is living in Chicago now. So I was like, hey, do you want to get together and hang out? Show me around Chicago. So he did. And he's like, hey, we can get tickets for the Cub game tonight. So we went to see the Cubs. And again, it was, you know, big, crazy, wild fast. I got to see it through his eyes. And that was amazing. Right. I guess he won the World Series. Yeah, you're, you're blessed. I'll take you to a Mariners game. Absolutely. If you can guarantee the same outcome. Nice. <laughs> you have some serious magic to rub out of your ass to get that team to win the World Series. It's really I, there's this headline today that said uh, for the, for my Mariners team, and it said like basically, I just said the the uh, the manager and the general manager uh, agree to a mix of of stats and old time baseball feel metrics and and old time baseball. Because you know baseball's like got that whole saber metrics thing where it's like oh if you just get the right cocktail of statistics, your team will be you know predisposed to blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And so I just read this whole thing, and I'm like, oh, cool. So we're not all in on anything now. We're just basically <laughs> thinking that, uh, yeah, that we're going to do what we've always done, which is a hodgepodge of no strategy. <laughs> we're going to be a yeah. middle-of-the-road middle pack team here. Yeah. That was one of the questions I had for Paul. I had to ask him what slugging was because it was a, a statistic that I'd never heard of before. Yeah, batting but, average by total bases or at-bats by total bases. Yeah, he like he loves explaining that stuff, right? And then soccer, he'll be like, "Why did this guy do this thing?" And you'd be like, "Oh, well, it's because you know." Right. I think it's great. You ask people who know, right? Instead of just you going, "Oh, whatever," you're like, "Okay, well, why did that happen?" Slugging percentage is a popular measure of a power hitter. Total bases divided by at bats. Yeah, so there you go. Dave, and that gives you a different statistic than just hits, then. Right? Yeah, because it 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 suggests how many bases. Yeah, like. Yes, hits would just basically be a, a frequency, an on, on base frequency, when the ball is struck. Whereas slugging percentage it has a greater indication of, of extra base hits or home runs. Right. Okay. Yeah. Dave, let us let us tie this one up, Dave. All right. Uh, do we need to do some kind of celebrity death here? Or? Oh man, I I get so wrapped up in it that I forget about the celebrity death. Do you have one? I don't, but I can find one in a hurry because uh, computers have everything now. So. Uh, Has anyone died recently? In a weird, uh, well, in a weird Chuck way? Berry just yeah, died. I did saw he not? Chuck Berry just died. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and see, now I'm just going to be. I'm just going to pull one out. I'm just going to try to think of somebody and see if I can. Uh, apparently, be- there's a, a uh, some sort of hoax about Rowan Atkinson being dead. Oh, really? Yeah. I used to do this thing on. Uh, uh, I thought it was a funny bit, but you know when, um, uh, what you call it? You know when you 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 listen to the morning radio and they they play like the Beatles birthday song and then they go, all right, happy birthday! If you're blowing out the candles today, you share a birthday with Peter Hall, <laughs> you know, Peter Hendry, the English businessman, and like those, right, right. Some some youngster reads through that page in the Calgary Sun. By the way, happy birthday to. Um, Guyuk Khan, the Mongol ruler and the third great Khan of the Mongol Empire. Mm. So I always used to do like who died on your birthday because <laughs> ah. I thought that was way funnier. I think Hitler was born the day after I was born. Oh, really? I think Hitler's birthday is April yeah. 20th, right? What's that? Hitler's birthday is April 20th. Isn't oh, maybe I'm wrong then. Yeah. When's your birthday? I should it's write the 11th of April. Okay, I'm going to write that down because I don't think I've ever called you on your birthday before. And I think maybe Paul McCartney was, but there's a, you always try it's to either, find the celebrities that were born. Paul McCartney or Adolf Hitler. No. 
Which what, which one was the great uh, the great artist? <laughs> I can never keep those two straight. <laughs> Uh okay sorry I'm 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 on the cusp of one so fill for thirty seconds I can't find anybody what I did was I looked I'm, up I've got one okay. okay go okay 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 oh, here we go okay and this is this is one I, I I just looked it up so I have no idea whether it's interesting or in any way so you're mostly just trying to figure out who the celebrity is here. okay okay yeah. Okay, on the evening of October 9th, 1985, Blank recorded his final interview on the syndicated TV program, The Merv Griffin Show, appearing with biographer Barbara Leeming. That's not relevant. Both uh, so-and-so and Leeming talked of Blank's life, and the segment was a nostalgic interlude, wrote his biographer. He returned to his house in Hollywood, worked into the early hours typing stage directions for a project that he and Gary Graver were planning to shoot at UCLA the following day. Blank died sometime in the morning of October 10th following a heart attack. He was found by his chauffeur around 10 a.m. Uh, and then there's some stuff about his estate, and I'm just reading it to see if any of it's in e, uh <laughs> You know... I- I, his, 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 one of his relatives later described the funeral as an awful experience. <laughs> That's a great funeral. Not really funny. I man. know, like I know what his feelings were regarding his death. So, and so one of his other, uh, people that worked with him wrote later, he did not want a funeral. He wanted to be buried quietly in a little space in a uh, little place in Spain. He wanted no memorial services. Uh, in, he just, this guy declined to attend the memorial program. Instead, he sent a short message ending with two lines of a Shakespearean sonnet that Blank had sent him on his most recent birthday. But if, uh, but if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored and uh, sorrows end. Do you have any idea who this person is? Um, hmm. No, but I was. It got. He said his chauffeur found him. Yes. I think butlers and chauffeurs find a lot of dead people. <laughs> like, I think that occupation disproportionately discovers dead people. Interesting. Okay. Don't, don't you think? It, that's probably true. Yeah, I, I just think butlers are constantly like, because that's, and then it, it sets in emotion a horrible turn of events because you're, you obviously care about the person, but you're also very concerned about your livelihood at that point. Because <laughs> no one needs a butler less than a dead guy. Or a driver, especially, right? Because right. the butler maybe is friends with the family or something. He's probably getting some more work out of the deal. But do you think that that chauffeurs, like when they're when they're, uh, I was gonna say master, like what would you call the guy that you drive for? Your the, boss, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Do you think that like you know there's a do you start to bring up like hey I'm just saying maybe a hearse like maybe well the town car's nice it's but. We can get a really nice, stylish. It's kind of like a station wagon town car, and I think uh, this one's a good deal. What do you say, boss? What do you think? <laughs> Steer him towards the hearse. Uh, I have no idea who that is. Is that a the, is that Hemingway? Uh, no, it is not Hemingway. Am I far um, Am I but like he's, this guy would be in that category of of individuals. The uh, one of the last uh, film, uh, the one of the last films that this actor did was uh, Transformers the movie. This would be an animated version of the Transformers <laughs> in 1986. Um, Does that help? No, not in the least. Uh, Alec Guinness. His first movie was in 1937. Holy shit. Okay. So this guy was like 90-something when he died. He was pretty old when he died. Uh, and he wasn't. It's not Alec Guinness. It is not Alec Guinness. 
but is a writer, right? Primarily? He, uh, he's known as a writer. I don't know if that's what you'd call his primary occupation. He was a, an actor. He was known to direct a film or two. Ah, oh, jeez. I don't know. I'm running out. I'm thinking of guys like John Wayne now, so I think I'm pretty far off. His most famous movie came out. It was his third movie that he ever made. And he directed, wrote, was the cinematographer, like did a lot of the cinematography for this film. And this film is generally considered to be the film that started the modern film era and is constantly, constantly ripped off for shots. And even if you've never seen this movie, you've seen almost every shot from this movie. Okay. Uh, where was this guy born? Uh, oh, great question. Uh, hang on. Let me see. He's, I believe he's American, but I, I would hate to be. I'm uh, pretty sure he's American. Was he big and bald and best seen in silhouette? Uh, he was born. Yeah, he's American. I don't know where in America he was born, but he's American. Did he, did he play a uh, what else can I tell did you about? Did he play a cameo in all his dead. movies? What's that? Did he play a cameo in all of his movies? It's not Hitchcock. It's not Hitchcock, no. Um, then the other guess I had was uh, Orson, Orson Welles. It is, in fact, Orson Welles. Orson Welles, yeah. Yeah. Man, that's a fun game. <laughs> yeah, like the, he was in so many movies that you have never heard of. What's the movie you're talking about, though, that his third movie that he, that he directed? Is that? It was uh, Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane. Yeah. 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 Like three years into his career. It's like, oh, yeah, here's a movie that's, you know, film people are going to talk about forever. Right. Although, again, if you've never seen Citizen Kane, you go to watch it now, you're going to be stunned by how slow of a film it is. It does not move at all. It's a very long, very dry film, but you're going to recognize every single shot in it because they've all been done on The Simpsons at least four times. <laughs> but there has to be a name for that, right? That it's like that movie sucks because everything – well, it doesn't suck, but that movie is – Boring compared to everything else now because of that movie. Like that set a bar that everything had to get over. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that whole thing where, yeah, it's so famous that it, it, it almost becomes a parody of itself at some point. Right, yeah. He made a movie the next year called The Magnificent Ambersons, which was a giant kerfuffle because he started directing and filming. Then he took off to South America and he brought the film with him and he was going to recut it. And finally, the studio was like, OK, we can't wait any longer. We're going to recut it. And he claims he had a better version of it that we never actually got. And people are like still clamoring for that, <laughs> that version of the movie. But I mean, the guy was a genius in his own way. Yeah. Like, he liked to eat that's a your little. opinion. What's that? That's your opinion. <laughs> uh, anyways, yeah. So Orson Welles is our celebrity. Death. His his one of his last films, the Transformers movie. <laughs> I find that really hard to believe, but I suppose. Well, I guess Brando. Sense. One of his last movies was probably probably Jor-El was pretty close to the end for him too, right? Mm, That's a good point. Um, all right, Dave. That about does it for us, my man. So we'll uh, do this uh, podcast thing again next week. Thanks for listening.